This is the Mizzou Sports Podcast, presented by the Columbia Daily Tribune. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mizzou Sports Podcast. My name is Eric Blum, breaking down Mizzou Sports with you every week here on the show. Joining me as always is the Tribune's Langston Newsom. How are you doing, Langston? Absolutely fantastic. How about yourself? I am doing well. Uh, we are coming to you on January 28th. Uh, not earth-shattering stuff has happened, but a lot has happened over the last week in Mizzou Athletics. Where do you want to start, Langston? Let's start with Mizzou basketball, you know, okay. coming off the highs of the win over Tennessee and then another low, or well, let's say lull, uh, in the loss to Auburn on Tuesday. Sure. What, what, what do you consider it a lull? I mean, obviously, yeah, they, they did lose 88-82 uh, to Auburn, but led wire to wire and beat Tennessee. They are now number 12 in the country, but they're probably going to slip regardless of how Saturday goes against the TCU team they should beat. Uh, what are your, just your observations kind of about those games? Uh, first, it gets to ten- against Tennessee. Mizzou's defense in the first half looked fantastic. There in the later parts of the, uh, of the first half, Tennessee just you started making shots, and a good team like Tennessee will do that. And I think one of the biggest takeaways from the game, something that you highlighted in your five um, takeaways from that win, was Mizzou was shooting 28% from three heading into that game. They shoot 42%. Against the against the Vols, and you have that kind of you know explosion of twenty seven points from Xavier Pinson, and so you kind of see the highs that this team can reach when it shoots well. But I mean, we have, I believe, you know, over ten games uh, in the season to really know that you know this Missouri team is not a a forty percent shooting uh, team from beyond the arc. They're not even high thirties, to be completely honest with you. And so when you go into that Auburn game and Mizzou shoots six for twenty five. That's more of a reflection of what this team really is when it comes from shooting beyond the arc. So, you know, in a game like that where they get off to that, you know, 21 to 9, they're trailing 21 to 9 about halfway through the first half, you can kind of see in that game, it's like, oh, this is just going to be a tough shooting night for Missouri. And then, you know, calm down, and you, I believe they lost by six in that game. And it Sharif Cooper just looked fantastic. And there's really nothing you can do when, you know, a guy's having a night like that. I mean, Sharif Cooper was the entire difference. I mean, you can you can blame it on the refs, and there's something to be said when you have uh, 44 three throws to 27. Um, and, I, I mean, towards the end of that game, Sharif Cooper was getting Tom Brady level of protection. <laughs> really, I mean, just... It, uh, it, 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 I'm not one to blame the refs. you got to make your shots. you got to play your game. But some of those calls were like, just, huh? Just, just, how is that a block on Jeremiah Tillman when he's standing absolutely upright and still? Just, I don't know how that's a block. Um, and just certain things like that. The, the, the foul that Drew Smith got fouled out on was an absolute... I mean, they just did not call that. Play enough of their game in order to, to win, essentially. I mean, Shreve Cooper is going to be a one-and-done. He's going to be a lottery pick next year, no doubt about it. And when it, when he you, you, you hit on it, when a guy's playing that well, just, just the tangible difference was so obvious. Missouri trails early. He picks up his third foul, goes to the bench. Missouri goes on a 33-13 to 13 run leads by six he comes back in the game they lose by six just it just just that was Sharif Cooper and everyone else I mean Auburn is a below average team without him with him they're solid they're an NCAA tournament team even though they're on a postseason ban they will be making it no matter what but just I don't think I've seen one player just absolutely dictate the pace of a game more than I did Sharif Cooper on Tuesday night Missouri's played better players I think I you know you know just there are there are better players than him but Io despite 36 points against Missouri, you could have other vantage points and intangible plot points of what happened in that Bragging Rights game. It was, okay, how is Sharif Cooper doing at every junction of that game? And he finished with plus 20, and without him, that's a 14-point win for Missouri. So that's kind of just where things stood in that Auburn game. Going back to Tennessee, and I think you would just look at how that Missouri team played, and it's like, that is that the potential of this team as well? I still don't think so, because... They played well, but there's still some tangible plot points they left on the table in that game. I think that was more so just Tennessee just maybe underestimating them, or I don't know what happened to the point where even in a nine-point win, Missouri probably should have won by more. And so what's to come for this team? I, I think that, you know, this is a team that now, and we talked about a little bit a little bit about this last week, is that this team is going to have to have a monumental collapse not to make the NCAA tournament. 
And those are the types of wins that make it even more monumental going into the way. At the end of the day, Auburn, the Auburn loss is their first close loss of the season. It's still a quadrant one game. It was a top 70 team at their place. Missouri's, you know, Missouri, at, at the end of the day, it was the one loss they've had this year that wasn't just an absolute defeating loss. At the end of the day, they're still 10-3, and 4-3 and three in the conference. And it's next week, not Saturday against TCU, which should be another big win for them. And a confidence builder going into a game at home against Kentucky and home against Alabama. The old standby and the new standby both coming to Columbia next week. And we have time to kind of break that down, but... That's a huge, huge, huge week for Missouri, not just because of who they're playing and where they are in the conference and because of reputation, but two wins in those two games. And at this point, this is Alabama's conference to lose, and they're going to have to falter more than I anticipate them faltering for NATO not to win conference coach of the year and them not to be the number one seed in the SEC tournament and win the conference. But in terms of just building something longer for March, which is kind of the plot points of what you want to start doing right now, uh, I, I think I think that those two games are an absolutely huge deal. Yeah, and in kind of speaking about the Alabama game next Saturday, it's interesting because, and this is why I love that we don't do the pod right after these huge games that happen on the weekend, and we kind of wait till the next week so we can really kind of sit and think. Because if we did the podcast you know, on last Sunday, I'm thinking Missouri has you know finally gotten over the hump as Xavier Pinson is out of his kind of shooting funk, and that you know Missouri can take that next step to really kind of challenge Alabama. Then after the loss to Auburn, you take a step back, you look at the shooting and how it was it just extremely well out of character against Tennessee, and you can say to yourself, you know what, this team is still where I thought it is. You know, it it is not in the middle of the SEC. I think it's the upper echelon there, but they're still behind Alabama. We'll see how that game goes. But this team still has its ups and downs and still has to fight. And it's not, there's no elite team unless you want to categorize Alabama like that I in would. the SEC. But Missouri is like right below that. And you would like to see consistency and you would like to see them overcome, you know, a night like that from Sharif Cooper. But sometimes, you know, it's just as simple as he was the best player on the floor. And sometimes, you know, a, a performance like that, you know, gets your team a win. It's just that simple. Looking around the SEC, there's not another player like him. Yep. Just, I mean, Alabama's a great team from top to bottom. They don't have that one Sharif Cooper type guy. Kentucky, I mean, Brandon Boston came up with as much hype as any Kentucky prospect has had, maybe since, I don't want to say Anthony Davis, but maybe Carl Anthony Towns is probably a better example. And he's kind of fluttered. Um, and so, you know, just looking around the league, the other, I mean, we've seen Tennessee twice. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking the team Missouri just hasn't played. LSU has uh, absolutely blanking on the kid's name, who's good sometimes, not good. The star freshman who's abs- Cade Thomas is his name, uh, I think. And just blanking on his name, we'll, we'll get it coming out of the break. But just there's not another player like him. Like, you, you think just, wow, there's one player that's going to dominate things. That scenario only happens for Sharif Cooper in his home gym. Mm-hmm. He's not going to, ha- that's not going to happen in a neutral court or at Mizzou so that was kind of a one and done experience as, as, as much as I hate to say that I mean just that was what Conzo Martin kind of was saying after the game it's just like he's just good it's a tough assignment I mean sometimes you just get beat and that's what makes what Baylor and Gonzaga are doing right now so special and even to a certain degree Alabama that, that every night they're on and I mean I feel bad for Kansas State but I kind of don't 107.59 last night sorry Bruce Weber <laughs> uh, but anyway um, just kind of looking at the future of basketball here for Missouri Langston just do you see next week's games as important as I uh, determined they are or are they just two, two other conference games do you think losing at a five at home against a five and ten Kentucky team would be a major disappointment and it, it's kind of crazy to even you know say that because you know one Kentucky being below 500 is crazy to conceive but this is a game where if you're Missouri to build up momentum going against Alabama again at home on the uh, on February 6th you have to win that game against Kentucky and so I think it is, like you said earlier, this is a massive slate of games. Now Missouri should handle TCU and the SEC Big 12 Challenge. But the, the next slate of games, you know, you're looking at uh, Kentucky, Alabama, then Old Miss uh, taking two out of three there, maybe three out of three. That, that's possible, but it all starts. You've got to beat Kentucky. This is the year. This Kentucky team is not good. They've got good players, but as a team, they're not good. So let me ask you this. Missouri wins against TCU. Missouri wins against Kentucky. 
the game at home against Alabama is Missouri's most important in the SEC since blank. Wow. Okay. Uh, okay, you got you got to go back to at least Kansas first year. That's an easy one there. And I have a couple candidates if you want to kind of break them down. Yeah. The first one I had in mind was that Kentucky game tournament when they, that was a, the first time they got a true sellout under Conzo. The first time I was at that game. Yeah, it was on CBS. I watched it in, in Texas. I remember. I think I, I think uh, Van Van Leer. That was one of his last games healthy. And um, Kevin yeah. Knox, uh, Tampa native. I was there yep. cheer, cheering for Kevin Knox, and he was terrible in that game. A few air balls, and I remember uh, my friends just looking at me. It was like, "This is the best Tampa basketball can do." And I'm like, "I played against Kevin Knox in high school. I remember seeing that kid. He's fantastic." But yeah, that was the MPJ year, and that was a huge game. And then was selling the energy in the arena was. Oh, I, I can't even compare anything to that. Unlike maybe uh, in 2016, the Missouri versus Georgia football game, a ton of hype going into that, where Drew Locke threw three interceptions in the second half. That type, that energy, and then and the at Furrow Field that day was the only thing that I can really compare to that um, Missouri Kentucky game. Yeah, uh, that was the one comparison. I mean, going back to 2013 was the last time Missouri made the tournament before the first Kansas first year, because in between was the Cam, uh, Cam, Kim Anderson years, which uh, they didn't come close to making the tournament those years. Uh, but the reason I had Cam on mine is because the guy's name is not Kay Thomas, Cam Thomas for LSU. Uh, anyway, um, I mean, I, I really do think that, you know, the Alabama game is probably going to be on those lines. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not going to be in terms of winning the conference because I don't think Missouri was in line to win the conference even with, uh, during that MPJ year. It's just in terms of putting their flag in the ground of, you know, kind of that game. It's, it's it, You know, you just have to think that that Missouri-Kentucky game, and I must, I apologize, folks, we're having a little bit of audio issues today. I don't know why I'm, uh, I reloaded software on the computer, but I apologize if we are having audio issues. But I'll, re- I'll remake that point is that Missouri-Kentucky game, did more for Missouri going forward, even though I think they lost in the opening round of the SEC tournament when it was still in St. Louis for that one-year Enterprise Center, and then they lost in Nashville to Florida State the first round of the NCAA tournament. It gave them the chance to do much more on a bigger level, and I think that getting that win over Alabama in your one regular season matchup could do the same for this group is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, and and it might sound like I'm down on this team just because I don't think they are as good as the highs that they've had against Illinois or the highs that they had in that in, in the win over Tennessee last week. But a win against Alabama at home next week would be their third top ten victory of the year. And and just thinking about you know all that we talked about how this had to be the year for Coach Martin and to have possibly three top ten wins you know going into the SEC tournament. I mean that's incredible. It's it's beyond what I thought this team could do, and I was high on this team, and we both were high on yeah. this team heading into the year. Yeah, that, that's very true. And, and you know, I'll, I'll read the list of teams who have five or more quad one wins right now in college basketball. There's Gonzaga with six, Baylor has five, Missouri has five, everybody else has four or less. That's a humongous stat. Auburn would have made it six. TCU's a quad two team, but Kentucky and Alabama are both quad one teams. I don't know how Kentucky's still in the top 70. But anyway, um, that's enough basketball talk for now. We'll get back into more of that next week after you would think it would be Missouri's favorite by 9.5 right now. You would think that a win over TCU, who plays Kansas on Thursday tonight, is supposed to get blown out. Missouri's higher ranked than Kansas at the moment and has better metrics. You would think that about kind of the restart of the season and just everything going on. So, yes, here's my interview from earlier today with Missouri head volleyball coach Josh Taylor. Sports podcast this time is Mizzou's head volleyball coach Josh Taylor. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. How, we talked off recording. How, how's the omelet? Oh, it was great. I mean, a couple years back, you and I were talking about uh, Broadway Diner. Have you hit it up yet? I did. I did actually uh, in November, uh, right after the election. Actually, I think my dad was in town. We got chocolate chip banana pancakes and the stretch omelet. I think at your recommendation. That's awesome. That's was that awesome. what you just had? Was the stretch omelet? I, uh, I actually got the works omelet, which is all the veggies and all the meats. So um, Dave over there hooks me up. So I, I love that spot. I've met Dave once. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, just We're here, obviously, to talk about, um, as much as I love talking about food, we're, we're here to talk about volleyball instead. Um, just kind of give us a broad update. Where does things stand now? I know you guys start the season Friday night, tomorrow night, based on when people are going to hear this against LSU and then Saturday night as well. Just where do things currently stand going into a spring volleyball season? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, obviously, we're not used to playing at this time uh, of the year, but, uh, you know, we've got 14 SEC matches this spring, and 
an NCAA tournament with a reduced field in April. So, you know, we're just trying to get a little bit better each day. We've got 11 healthy kids ready to play, and um, we've actually had uh, two early enrollees, Kaylee Cox and Lauren Forbes, uh, great freshman for us. They're not, they are not eligible to compete this spring, but they can train and practice, and they're making our starting side a lot better, so they're fantastic additions. Um, but as of now, all the 11, they're healthy, they're ready to go, and we're ready to compete. You kind of mentioned it there, so I'll ask you about it, right? It was kind of down on the list of questions, but I'll move it up. Uh, I believe the NCAA tournament field went from 64 to 48, and the entire 16 you lost is all at-large teams. That's correct. Correct. All at-large bids out the window. Um, so that makes it, what, like only 16 at-larges and 32 conferences, something something like that? 15, 33, 15, uh, something like that? That's correct. So, I mean, we'll, there'll be 32 automatic qualifiers okay. uh, for the teams who win their conferences, and then there's only 16 at-large bids after that. So it's going to be kind of the Wild West to see who gets those 16. And so in a, a competitive a conference as the SEC is, does that make your margin for error even less, you think? Where, I mean, usually, I mean, if you do decent in the SEC, your chances of making the NCAA tournament are pretty good. Now Absolutely. there's, I mean, you essentially have to, I guess, be basically in the top 25 of the country be ranked or win your conference or you're not in the NCAA tournament. Correct. I, I think it definitely puts a lot more pressure on us to be successful and uh, win more matches because, like, like you mentioned, I mean, last year I think we finished tied for third in the SEC, and, I mean, we didn't even sweat at all because we, we knew we'd making the NCAA tournament how well we played and how high our RPI was. Um, but this year, uh, since we're not playing out of conference matches, the RPI doesn't come into play. So it's all going to be the eye test, and which is frustrating because I don't think it's possible to judge a team on your vision without there being some kind of bias towards that team. So, um I don't know who's doing the eye test, but uh, we we, we got to rely on, on getting a lot of wins, not just someone uh, thinking that we're good. You might not have looked into this because you have to make the NCAA tournament to kind of care about this, but have you looked into how it's going to be formulated? Is it going to be campus sites all the way to the Final Four again, or how how is that going to happen this year? That's a great question. I'm not sure if they're sure. Uh, the only thing that's really been decided upon is um, the Final Four will be held in Omaha, and uh, that's where it was going to be in December, um, so they kept that site, and uh, it's going to be a great place for volleyball. Uh, but, yeah, I'm not sure what they're going to be doing with those first preliminary rounds. Just in terms of health-wise on the team, where does everybody stand? I mean, you said you have 11 healthy players and two early right. enrollees, but just in terms of just uh, just to kind of recap, I guess, where you're at, and please tell me if any of this information is wrong. Um, like I told remember, Manet opted out, um, right. and she's not expected back. I mean, either transferring or done with volleyball is, I think, would be the two options for her. That's pretty much correct. That's her understanding. Yep. Um, Tiana Omazich is a horrible injury. It seems like a freak accident type of injury, but tore her ACL completely. Right. Um, is not expected back until next fall, but she plans on returning with the next year of eligibility. Correct. We've got a spot for her, and administration's on board, so we'll be bringing her back next fall. So the Tiger volleyball is not done with the Tiano Mazich yet. Is that more so on the COVID kind of front of bringing her back, or is that a medical redshirt type deal? Right. So I'm not even sure if medical redshirt's a thing this year, because regardless if you play, get injured, don't play, you, you don't lose a year of eligibility. So uh, we won't be needing to use medical redshirt, and she'll have one more year of eligibility. That's awesome for her, because I know how much that, that just gutted her to have to... It was, yeah, it was she was playing great volleyball. She was playing great volleyball, so we, we were upset for her, and um, we're, we're excited to see her return because I think she'll come back pretty strong. Injuries obviously are a humongous thing in every sport, and especially in volleyball, but it seems like you guys still have some pretty good outside and middle hitters despite the loss of those two. I mean, just to name a few, Kylie DeBerg, Anna Dixon. I mean, just, just talk about the current makeup of the team because I know we want to take, we'll talk more about who is actually going to play this spring. So talk about more of the makeup of the team you hopefully will make the NCAA tournament with, do you think? Yeah, I mean, Kylie DeBerg and Anna Dixon are carrying really large loads for us. Uh, not super surprising with Kylie, but, um, I mean, Anna Dixon, this is her second year playing. And at K-State, uh, her freshman year, she got some playing time, but not definitely does not have as much experience as Kylie, and she's carrying just as heavy a load. So um, it, it gets us really excited about the future. She's going to have to be stepping into Kylie's shoes when Kylie leaves at the end of the spring. So, um you know, we're really excited about those two. Those two are going to, as I, as I mentioned, shoulder a burden for us, and um, they, they're both very comfortable doing so. So it's going to the the front is going to be led by those two, and uh, Kenneth Sauer has done a really nice job of stepping into the middle position, and Claudia's doing well in the middle. And um, I think something to mention too is Emily Brown being a true freshman, um, earning that full time libero spot is doing fantastic. And uh, um, I think if she continues. Improving the way she is, I, I think she'll be fighting for freshman of the year in the SEC. 
how does the SEC as a whole kind of look? I mean, I know just from talking to you earlier today, um, Auburn has canceled their season. I mean, so is that 13 teams kind of fighting for it now? Yeah, so that uh, that takes us down to 12 teams competing in the spring with Auburn out. And Who, who else uh, doesn't have volleyball in the conference? Vanderbilt? Vanderbilt. Okay. Yeah. So um, Kentucky's the only team that has an unblemished record right now. And uh, um, they're, they're obviously playing good volleyball. They're the number one recruiting class in the country coming in this fall. And um, Florida dropped two matches to unranked teams. So even though they're ranked really high right now, 10th in the country, um, they, they, they've got weak points that we're looking to exploit, um, not this weekend, but the weekend after. But, um, yeah, right now it's a free-for-all. Everyone's playing great volleyball. Um, a large majority of, co- of the conference hired new head coaches in the past two or three years, and the new head coaches are really high level. So they're teaching volleyball the right way, and um, the conference is only going to continue to get stronger. So it's a great place to be right now with volleyball. I guess you include yourself in that group of being hired in the last two or three years and at a high level? I'm okay. Yeah, I think I'm all right. <laughs> We're getting better. Fair, fair enough. I, just, I had to add, add that in there. Um, if I'm correct, you guys are now six and two, uh, but both yep. your losses were to that unblemished Kentucky team you mentioned. Correct. Um, correct. Do you think that going into the spring, you just that's a benefit that you've already played, who's pretty much on top of the league right now, and will take one maybe the automatic spot away that you're in a great position for one of those at-large bids, knowing you've played the best team you can play because of the rigors of the NCAA. Yeah, I, I think the way we're looking at it a little bit right now is that. We played uh, right now. They're ranked number four nationally, and that's with all Division One teams being eligible to be put in that poll. So they are that good. And um, having taken a set off them both nights that we played them, and even now we're better than we were then. Um, I think we'll be providing us some good information and, and also some confidence going into play big teams like Florida. Um, but even right now, Georgia's playing fantastic volleyball. South Carolina's playing fantastic volleyball. So. Um, you know, we want to be taking that, and we, we can we can rumble with the big boys. So um, we're we're confident going into into some big matches here. Just if if you could draw it up, I mean, the answer might be a national championship. But if you could draw it up, how, how do you see the kind of the season playing out? I mean, just it just I know it's hard. Everything's kind of written in pencil because of COVID. But right. just how how do you? What would you consider? I guess well, let me rephrase it this way: What would you yeah. be consider a successful season in May or June? You're like, okay, we got it done regardless. But what would you, what would success look like to you? Uh, for for me, it's, it's going to be um, everyone buying in and devoting themselves to be better each day. And I think we've got to be the best version of ourselves on the court and in life. And um, if we if we truly devote ourselves to that, I think we'll see success, as most people phrase it, with wins and losses. And I think we'll see wins if we do that. But um, for me, at the end of the day, if I can look back and say. Yeah, you know, each day we got better. Um, each opportunity that we had to improve, we took advantage of. And, uh, you know, we as a staff and we as a roster, we're, we're pushing ourselves the best that we could possibly be. I, I'm going to consider that a success. I think a lot of people are curious to kind of ask now. During, I mean, obviously you're a head coach at the University of Missouri. Um, how often do you work with other head coaches at the school? And just and did that increase through the COVID or less because you guys have to be separated? Or how, how does all that work? Right. So I think it's always interesting because when we, when we head coaches are in season, we don't have lives. And, uh, I think it's really interesting because I even have family members that are like, Oh, you never call us anymore. I'm like, Mom, I am working seven days a week. I've got no time to call you. I've got 14 women on my roster that I'm taking care of. I got three full-time staff members that I'm taking care of. And, you know, I've got a lot to do here. And I think one thing that was really fortunate, um, uh, I was really fortunate to get some some time from Coach Martin uh, when all this social injustice stuff was going on, and I really seek some guidance from him around how to approach my team, how to talk about these things, and um, he was incredibly gracious with his time and uh, kind of led me in that. And, um, yeah, so I, I was incredibly grateful for that. And I think um, we as a coaching staff uh, – coaching staff, sorry. We as head coaches at Mizzou have a group text. All head coaches are in that group text, and we're supporting one another. And um, um, j- just the support that we've got, we pay attention to each other, um, how, how each team is doing. And um, it's pretty unique, and it's a pretty great place to be. And uh, I feel incredibly fortunate to be a head coach at Mizzou. What have your experiences kind of been like uh, with Eli Drinkwood so far? Oh, I haven't had too much time. He's been busy winning and turning the program around. So uh, I've seen him in a couple meetings prior to COVID, uh, hitting us hard and saying hi, and um, but haven't had a ton of time to interact with him quite yet. He, he's a busy man. 
Fair, fair, fair enough. Um, I'll switch it to focusing on someone I know you have had time to interact with, and that's Molly. Um, yeah. I would at least hope so. <laughs> um, how do you guys manage kind of coaching together and then also having a life outside of volleyball together? Yeah. Um, we both really enjoy our jobs. And coaching together, to be honest with you, is not hard. Um, we're both pretty opinionated when it comes to the way to play volleyball well and to be honest with you most of those opinions are pretty similar um so we we really don't have much issue there and i think we're we're good and this is weird to say but bear with me we're good at fighting we're good at arguing because we hear each other out we understand each other's point of views and we respect those and um um, we, we don't say hurtful things to one another and we, we love each other like crazy so it makes it really easy to work with her she's fantastic um assistant coach and I, I'm very very fortunate to have her on staff and I, I think at times we, we do struggle to leave things out of the house um, we love our jobs and we're very competitive so we talk about it a lot even at home um, but yeah uh, I think at times after practice where we're frustrated like last night's a great example we did not have a great practice yesterday I cut practice short and I was frustrated it's the week of a match and um, on the drive home, I said, let's talk about it on the phone when we get, cause we drive separately. So let's talk about it on the phone. When we're done off the phone, we're home. Let's hang out with the dogs. Let's relax. And, uh, we did just that. So, um, it's really just being mindful at times where you got to pay attention to one another and leave work where work is. Two things with off of that. Uh, I might've heard that wrong, but you said dogs. I thought it was just Kona. We got, oh, great, great question. So we, Kona's got a brother now, Loki, and, uh, he, is about six months old. He's also a German Shepherd, and he's okay. weighing in about 75 pounds, so he's a big old boy. Uh, Loki, Loki is named off the Marvel villain? Yeah, I guess Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, L-O-K-I, that's him. Okay, f- fair enough. And then just, uh, you said you're good at fighting, but it sounds like more so to me that you're just good at communication. You just know how, how far <laughs> you two can push each other. Is that more so kind of what you meant there? Yeah, we're pretty good at communicating. Molly and I actually did some therapy together when we uh, really got into dating prior to being engaged, and it was fantastic. We loved it. My dad's a psychologist and has owned a private practice for 20-plus years now, so I've always been around psychology, and uh, I've been fortunate to have a dad who's pretty good at communicating. And um, Yeah, we're, we're very good at communicating. We understand that our opinions are going to be different at times, and um, just respecting those and loving on one another, and at times agreeing to disagree and move on and um, that's always what's interesting because I love hearing her opinion and I love hearing my staff's opinion. But, but at the end of the day, the head coach has got to make that decision. So um, that's why at times it can be a lonely place. But I'm very fortunate to have her on staff and obviously be her husband. Is that back home in Hawaii, that practice? Yes. Yep. He's okay. still got a practice out there. Very, very cool. And I, I think you mentioned the three full-time staffers, Molly being one of them. I think all you might be the old – no, Molly might be a little older than you. So, I mean, but you're all under the age of 30 or 31 maybe? We're all under the age of 30. Molly and I are both 28. Russ is 26. And Alyssa, oh, geez, is she 23 or 24? She's real young. She's under 25. She just graduated a couple years ago, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Molly's the oldest. She's older than me by two months. But, yeah, Molly's the oldest, the grandma on on staff at 28. (laughs) You mentioned the infusion of young coaches in the SEC, but how still rare is that you can have an entire technical staff where 28, soon to be 29 in a couple, I guess a little over a month, is going to be the oldest person on staff? It's really uncommon, and um, I I think we we as a staff take a lot of pride in that. And um, it was something that I was a little bit concerned about when I was the interim was, man, are they going to trust me to take this over with how young I am? And uh, I've got a really great friend in David Hunt, who's the head coach of Pepperdine now since I left, and I told him that, and he goes, Josh, if you think that way, you shouldn't be a head coach. You don't deserve it. And I said, man, you're right. So, you know, we don't act young. Um, we, we conduct ourselves in, in a mature way, and um, us four have got a vision for this program, and I believe we're moving in the right direction with that um, by the standards we uphold and, and, and the way um, we expect each other to live our lives as well as the girls in our roster to live their lives and um, conduct themselves on the court. So it's a, it's a really unique situation, all four of us being under 30, but um, we absolutely love it. It's, it's, it's hard to think about that it's still only about 18 months ago that Wayne and Susan Kreckler were atop the program. Right. It was July wow. of 2019. People think about, wow, everything that's happened since March 2020, but it was even way before that that you know you, you, you took over. How much do you, are you still in contact with them? Obviously, well, you're not related to them, but uh, right. how much are you still in contact with them, and how much you know do they even stop by or give you their support? Yeah, never. And uh, <laughs> you know, they, I think 
Um, they obviously did a fantastic job with Mizzou, and they were here for 19 years. And something to keep in mind, too, is that they've been coaching even longer than that, right? So it's like 40-plus years of coaching that they were doing. And um, when they stepped away, I think they were ready to do it. And they gave it to Molly and I. They wanted it to be ours, and they were incredibly respectful of that. And um, I think they come to some matches, but besides that, they, they let us do our thing. And, uh, yeah, they, they did a great job with Mizzou and looking to continue that success. So supporting from afar is, is the best way to put it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Fair, fair enough. Um, just I guess kind of kind of wrapping up here and thank you and thank you for your time, Josh. It, it's just uh, there's a lot of focus right now on the spring, kind of come off the fall, but just how are you gonna when you have a jam packed spring go into next fall, which looks like nothing's been changed about that yeah. yet. Yeah, man, uh, it's tough. It's something I'm not trying. I'm trying to not put too much focus on, but it's always something that's right there and. We're used to being in season, quote unquote, in season for four months of the year. And uh, in 2021, we'll be in for double that time. So it's going to be a lot of stress on the staff. It's going to be a lot of stress on the girls. And um, right now, um, to be honest with you, just winning the first match against LSU is a daunting task. That's that's a big task to accomplish. And um, to think about that, then 14, 13 matches after that, then another fall. Um, it, it is it's pretty extreme. So right right now, just trying to focus on day to day, but it's always in the back of my mind. We've we've got to play. We've got double days in August, and um, we'll have including Kaylee and Lauren who are here now. We'll add five more additions. So. We're going to be a crazy young team, but um, I think that, you know, that means we can train harder. That means we can get after it. They're going to be sponges, and uh, they're going to be learning every single day. So um, it's a lot, but uh, as of now, I'm preparing for tomorrow, and then and then we'll prepare for Friday, and um, we'll, we'll kind of go from there as, as the fall comes at us. So that was Josh Taylor, uh, head coach of Mizzou Volleyball. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Just um, You guys were allowed to have fans at the Hearns, right? Yes. yes. So in the fall, we actually had A section and B section open, and they recently just opened up C section. So we were capped at about 900. We can have more now. So uh, we'd love to see everybody at Hearns. It'd be fantastic. Still masks, social distancing, hand sanitizer, bring all that for fans? Correct. Yep. Bring your masks. And uh, we've got... um, We've got people walking around, making sure masks are on, making sure people are distanced. We have seats that are marked that are safe for people to use, and um, it's an incredibly safe place to be in Hearns to watch volleyball. I thank you so much, Josh, for your time, and um, it's always awesome to have you on before this season. I just didn't expect that. I guess yeah. when we had you on in August, that I'd be talking right. to you in January about that. But you know, but but here we are. So thank you so much, man, for your time, and we'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. We would like to thank our sponsors for the Mizzou Sports Podcast. University of Missouri Healthcare. University of Missouri Healthcare is proud to be the official sponsor of MU Athletics. Blue Events. Let Blue create your perfect event. Their passion for food, service, and presentation ensures that you will have a seamless and memorable event, no matter the size. They will work with you to bring your vision to life. Phyllis Nichols, State Farm Insurance. There when things go wrong, here to help life go right. And now back to our podcast. And thank you once again to Josh for joining us on this week's Mizzou Sports Podcast. It's kind of a tradition we've started when he talks to us before the start of a season. And I guess it's, we doubled up this year because of COVID. But anyway, uh, follow Mizzou Football with the Tribune's Tiger Extra newsletter. Sign up at ColumbiaTribune.com slash Tiger Extra for stories, galleries, and podcasts in your inbox every Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. The Mizzou Sports Podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's, the home of handmade-to-order chicken, salads, and more than a dozen mild-to-wild sauces. Stop at your neighborhood Zaxby's today. 114 Cinnamon Hill <laughs> Lane. There we go. Didn't even have to bring it up, yes. Uh, at the Stadium Boulevard exit with North 63 in Columbia is your Zaxby's fix. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. We'll get back into the Mizzou stuff now. Uh, the SEC did release uh, their football schedule for the 2021 season. We knew five dates from Missouri already. It was just where the other seven fell. Langston, I'll let you take it from here and read it off. All righty. We've got Central Michigan, Kentucky, SEMO at Boston College. Probably should have said where the games were earlier. Uh, October 2nd, we've got uh, against Tennessee. October 9th, you've got against North Texas. At home again, against three home games there in that stretch before a bye on October 23rd. Then you're at Vandy, at Georgia, against South Carolina, against Florida, and you finish at Arkansas on November 27th. 
What are your thoughts? Last year, we were talking about being patient um, with having the games against Alabama and LSU in the first three games. This year, there is no conceivable way why Missouri can't start this year 5-1, and 6-0, and looking at the early start of the schedule. So it was kind of a gift the way the SEC gave it to them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, when I was watching the, you know, schedules be announced, I was like, Central Arkansas, you know, Kentucky, which was really, really down last year and really didn't have uh, multiple facets to its offense. I know they changed parts of their coaching staff, and so that might not be the same. But when you look at the first three weeks, especially Central Michigan, Kentucky, and then SEMO, that should be 3-0. If you're drinkers, you're looking at that. There's like, we're starting this 3-0 before Boston College. Yeah, as I wrote, I mean, the first six are all winnable. Do I think Missouri's going to go 6-0? No, no, I don't. Um, Central Michigan, well, let me start here. Central Michigan, Southeast Missouri, North Texas on September 4th, September, September 18th, and October 9th individually um, all have to be wins. I might even group October 2nd against Tennessee, home against a team you were better than last year, have to be wins. That's four right there. That's for Drinkwitz's goals to become true. Those all have to be wins. And you look at how Kentucky was, as you just said, last year, second game of the year, even though it's on the road in Missouri, I don't think is one in Lexington as a member of the SEC. Maybe in 2014, that would be it. Um, or that would be actually, sorry, 2013. Uh, they put they go to Lexington in odd years, my apologies, because they were there in 17, they were there in 19, because I was there. Um, so they go with two Lexington in odd years, because they're going there in 2021, duh. Uh, but... You know, you, you just look at how Kentucky's been on the rise under Mark Stoops. Last year, they were down, and Missouri beat them under a Jiguitz team. Missouri wins this game, and I think that's their second most challenging one of the first six. That's a great sign for where Missouri's going to be, that they at least are not retracting from their third position in the SEC East. Because you can't see Tennessee lapping them. You can't see uh, South Carolina lapping them. Vanderbilt's going to be down again. So really, if there's a team from the bottom four that can challenge Missouri for the number three spot in 2021. I see it being Kentucky. So that is a huge game week two. Of the first six, I think the Boston College game is going to be absolutely challenging. Their first true conference game, first true road and overall comp, uh, regular season game against an ACC team since 2000. So it's, it, 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 this is just an interesting matchup you don't see too often. And Boston College is really good. They held Clemson without Trevor Lawrence. Um, but held Notre Dame close, too. Boston College is kind of in the same spot where Missouri is in the SEC, a team on the rise with several young standout players and with a coach who hasn't been there that long. Um, Missouri can absolutely win this game against Boston College. I don't think Boston College plays that great of a style. Missouri has a more uprooting style, but Boston College doesn't do much wrong. I mean, they're Kentucky from a few years ago. I guess 20, make that 17, is kind of where Boston College is right now. Yeah, I mean... It'll be interesting to see, but yeah, just before that game, there's just no reason in my mind for Missouri not to be 3-0 going into a Boston College game. And then Tennessee, extremely down last year, hired a new AD, new coach, a new regime. I, I just think with year two, Coach Drinkwitz, you should expect to win that game. Then you got North Texas. And then it gets into the kind of tougher part of the schedule when you're going against Texas A&M. I don't want to be that guy that says, oh, that's going to be a loss. That's going to be a challenging game. Then you go right into the bye and then at Vandy and then at Georgia, basically getting two buys there. Um, just how, how bad Vandy was last year. I don't expect them to be much better a year later. So it, it's really interesting because then you've got Georgia south carolina and then florida and that's going to be where we really find out a ton about this team is that three game stretch there beginning at um at georgia on november 6th yeah am hasn't been to columbia since that henry josie game 57 yard td run 2013 that capped the uh um sec east for them and kind of looking back around it just even you know the national headlines for that day is like wow the number five team in the country almost won it on a walk-off why is it not everywhere in ESPN? It's because of the Iron Bowl that day. The kick six was that exact same day with the number one and number four teams in the country playing each other. Anyway, uh, yeah, so that A&M has not been here and it'll be eight years. Um, it'll be interesting because A&M did lose a lot of talent, but they also get back a lot of talent like the big powerhouse college football teams do from a team that probably should have, in my opinion, been in the college football playoff and did win uh, the Orange Bowl. So I think Jimbo Fisher is starting to get his Florida State 
Jameis Winston's, you know, run-style system in it, A&M, where they can recruit better than they can in Tallahassee. I think this is going to be a good Texas A&M team, and if Missouri loses them, I don't think it's going to hurt them too much, but this could be one of those wins where Missouri really puts his foot in the ground early. I mean, Real Edgewood does not have a chance at a signature win to add to his trophy case until week seven of the college football season. And that's a good thing and a bad thing, considering he was thrown to the Wolves in year one. I think that really did benefit him long term. Now that he's not being thrown to the Wolves and he's kind of being walked through the garden before being thrown to the Wolves, we'll see how that kind of benefits him. Um, You don't choose when you get your bye, but I really think the bye actually works against Missouri this year. I think it would have been better in the first week of November right there. And you flip that with Georgia. That's kind of where I would think just get it out of the way and then you have the winnable games after. Um because you get a week where you prepare for Vanderbilt. You know, at the end of the day, I was there the last time Missouri played Vanderbilt. That was supposed to be the putting pressure on the NCAA type of game where it's like, we're going to blow out this team as the the number 22 team in the country and start to put pressure on them to make a a decision with the NCAA sanctions to the point where I had 500 words written pregame and a column about how they're putting pressure on the NCAA and then they lost. Um, So I don't think at Vanderbilt's a gimme but it's as close and SEC players you're going to get. Um, so that should be a win for Missouri as much as AM should be a loss. And then they play my national championship pick as of right now at Georgia, um, especially if more fans with the vaccine can be there. That's a loss. Sorry. Um, and then you get South Carolina at home, Florida at home, and then at Arkansas. Hopefully they move that game from Little Rock to Fayetteville by the time that's played. But if it's in Little Rock, great. Uh, that was probably my least favorite stadium I visited two years ago. Um, you know, anyway, because Fayetteville has such a nice stadium. I don't know why they move it to Little Rock. I came to Little Rock. I don't know. Is it more of a home field advantage in Little Rock than is in Fayetteville? I don't know. Um, but looking at the back six, I really think the game that matters most on Missouri's schedule is that number November 20th against Florida. Not only because of what happened against Florida um, last year, but you can't go in the SEC. If you're trying to go from three to one, you don't go three to one. You got to go three to one, in my mm-hmm. opinion. And so I think that with the talent Georgia has coming back, they're very clearly going to be one next year. F- Florida's going to have to be a little bit down from where they were this year. We're losing Kyle Trask, Kadarius Tony, and a few other p- pieces. They're going to be two. And so if Missouri wins that game, they could flip that one year. And I think they're probably still going to go probably six and two, five and three in the conference. But I think everybody else is going to kind of beat up on everybody else a little bit too. Or five and three, six and two could still be second in the SEC East. And because I'm expecting Georgia to beat everybody, that's eight and zero. And then you kind of see what's happening from there. So, uh, as of right now, and I'll ask you this, Langston: If you were Vegas, where would you put the over/under wins for this team as of this very moment? But where? But then in your head, where would you put it, and how are those two things different? So if I'm Vegas, and let me look at the schedule once again. So I'm gonna do some podcast math there. It's one, two, three, four, five, six. I think if it was at seven and a half, that's a good number in my opinion. No, no, let's bring it down six and a half. So if you're Vegas, you put it at six and a half, but you think it's more realistic to be seven and a half is what you're saying. Yeah, I think it's yeah. more. I, I definitely think Missouri's winning seven or eight games this year. Um, yeah. But it, if I was Vegas, I'm counting on Mizzou having that one game where they lose to, uh, let's say, they lose to a Boston College in a game that they should win, or they lose to a Kentucky early in a game they should win to kind of bring that down. I. Um, it's interesting because it's such a drastic change from last year where you know if Missouri came out got blown out by LSU you know no one's really upset with Drinkwitz it just is what it is I know LSU was down last year and Missouri uh, beat them but I I don't think anyone really would have gotten upset you start off with a you know shaky game against Central Michigan and then you lose to Kentucky that's when you know that's when the rumors and and the questions start really starting or if you God forbid you lose to SEMO you know, I, I that don't can't happen. <laughs> that is that, that's one of the things. So it's like, you know, he went from zero expectations last year to there's just no reason why he can he could lose to Central Michigan or SEMO, or it, even in my opinion, Tennessee. Just after how, how awful they were last year, like that's a game you should win if you if you truly do want to compete for that second spot in the SEC East. You cannot lose that game. No, I- 
let, let's start by saying this. SEMO is a g- good team for the FCS. And SEMO was an FCS playoff team in 2019. It was one of the best 25 teams, 24 teams, excuse me, in the country. The year Missouri went 6-6 six and six and beat them 50 to nothing with and took them completely their foot off the gas at home. That's just, if Missouri loses to SEMO, Drinkwitz might not make it out of the stadium <laughs> with a job. Um, you know, a la, not to bring up Appalachian State when they visited Michigan, even though he was still, I think, a high school coach at Springdale when that game happened at the Big House in 2007. Um, Central Michigan and with Texas, these are not your Cincinnati, Boise State types teams that are from the group of five that look challenging BYU Coastal Carolina from this past year. They've had good teams, but Jim McElwain and I don't know, Seth, Seth Luttrell, who is the coach at North Texas, don't have that much coming back that can should be able to compete with Missouri. That's 3-0 and right there. Tennessee should be a win along those same lines. Um, but if you're looking at it from a Vegas perspective, you know, you think they split Kentucky, Boston College, if not lose both of those games because it, because being early in the year hurts them Vegas-wise when not too much information is known about the team. Um, right now, Georgia, A&M, Florida, losses right there. Arkansas is a coin flip where you can kind of combine that in South Carolina to one. I wouldn't be surprised if the Vegas odds are five and a half, six as of right now, win loss. Although in my head, I, th- I think the minimum, I would put it at a six and a half. Um, I just think there's no way Eli Drinkwitz has a losing record from this schedule. I could see it being seven and five, and that would be a little disappointing. But eight and four, nine and three, I think is actually where, the, as of right now, the 21 21 uh, Missouri team is going to end up. I'm sorry, I just don't see a route to victory right now against AM at home or georgia on the road and there's gonna be one other slip up somewhere um and then then that's your ceiling so and i'm neither of us mentioned it but yet that game against arkansas last year was a competitive game and year one you know dropped a two-point conversion from losing at home against arkansas in 2020 so that should be competitive as well you know i guess i I guess after last year and seeing some of the highs under coach drinkowitz i just go into this year expecting much more and i think fans should expect much more especially looking at this early part of the schedule yeah yeah it's just with, with the amount of goodwill he's bought himself with just even since his hire in 2019 he won that press conference his advances in recruiting and just the way he carries himself it'll be interesting to see if things start to go wrong and i don't expect that to happen but if things start to go wrong at how much has to go wrong for there to be things going wrong online i think starting off zero and two would do it um a loss to sema would absolutely do it but like you just you just there weren't that many unforced errors with drinkwitz and that's one thing i've learned about just watching his teams if if they're gonna get beat they're gonna get beat but there's not that many unforced errors that his team does at the end of the day, Mississippi State was their one loss last year, I think. That where was a real head-scratcher. Really. That was, but was not a head-scratch. What could have been a head-scratch, but was not just because the team had 45 eligible players at that point. You had Sean Robinson with a pick in the game. He did not throw a pick. He had a pick. Just when those things happen in a COVID year, you can kind of take everything with a grain of salt. So... I think that might be able to shine a little bit of light into why there's been these coaching changes, not beyond Ryan Walters, but the Brick Haley for Jethro Franklin switch. I think that that might be a little bit behind of why that is because the defensive line had some unforced errors in 2020. Maybe that was coaching. Maybe that was attrition. I don't know, but I think Eli Drinkwitz very much hinting at needing a fresh start was due to him identifying something where it was out of his control that things happen that should not have happened and i think that at many other position groups last year that didn't happen of just unforced errors and mistakes and i I, i'm probably reading too much into it but that's kind of the one trait you see is just you know he talks about the gap of georgia and florida and we're gonna hear so much more about that between now and september that's gonna be the phrase of the year um but when you look at the georgia and the floridas against the teams that are not alabama's or anms they're playing they kind of just sit back, wait for those teams to get tired, make mistakes, and then they capitalize and absolutely pound you. And Missouri can't do that yet, but that's where I think Eli Drinkwitz is hoping to be because that's what he did against most of the teams in the Sun Belt when he was the head coach at Appalachian State. So that's kind of my take for now. 
Um, anything else, Langston? Yeah, I, I guess I just want to add the only position group that I think you can look at outside of the defensive line that really just had unforced errors, and it's not really a, a true position group. It's just special teams in, in your punt returning. That's the only thing that I look at is like I can't believe how many mistakes Missouri is making over and over at that position. And that's why I said a couple of weeks ago that Dominic Lovett um, was the prized recruit of the 2021 class because you can just give a lot to him and I think that solves that. However, my choice would change based off the past couple weeks. I think Dominic Glover might actually be third now based off of who's been added the past couple weeks and Mookie Cooper, who I think you just get the ball in his hands and he can do stuff. And the, the player they signed last night, Jadarius Perkins, the, uh, the junior college cornerback, at the end of the season last year, Missouri was starting two true freshmen at corner. And Jarvis Ware is expected back, but you put someone with that much experience and ability you know, a former Oregon signee, someone who's going to have to play on that type of defense in the middle of Missouri system. I think that that's a guy that when Steve Wilkes gets his hands on him, I think that's the type of guy who can just shine and be that DeMarcus AC for a for example off the top of my head of a, of a corner that Missouri's had is, that is now playing on an NFL practice squad that's doing well, at least at that level of productivity. So, uh, anything else you want to talk about before we end this week's show, Langston? No, just continue to wear a mask, socially distance, and uh, enjoy the next few days of just the crazy Wall Street talk and GameStop and all that. I know I've had a ton of fun reading and seeing the stuff on Twitter about that. So, but, you know, enjoy it. And it, it's something that's not catastrophic that's on Twitter that we can all kind of follow along with. Were you, were you a GameStop aficionado before all this happened? And are you, you going to be now? <laughs> I When I was younger... There was nothing better than going to the mall and and going into GameStop and looking at PS2 games and things like that. I don't think I've actually stepped foot and bought something at it. Nope, I'm I'm lying. I bought Madden 20 like maybe a year ago at a GameStop. Yeah. It's so. been a while since I've been in a GameStop. I definitely have been in since the pandemic started. I think I moved here like when I right when I moved here, but now I go to Best Buy for games for whatever reason. Just to use my rewards points there. But yeah. Um, kind of going into sports talk, nothing else big has happened. And we kind of mentioned it, but it's Josh Heupel, uh, Josh Heupel, sorry, is the hire at Tennessee uh, for Missouri OC, hired by Danny White, who is their new AD, uh, who is both coming from Central Florida. So we'll see how that goes. And it'll be his homecoming to Missouri on October 2nd. Yeah, it, and I thought that was... Uh, once Danny White got hired as the AD, I, w- I was wondering, I was like, is Heupel going to make the jump um, from UCF? And, and it's great to see him back in um, the SEC. I was definitely, when I was a student, definitely a fan of Heupel. And I remember watching Missouri's, uh, I think it was the Texas Bowl game against Texas right after he left for UCF and I just think oh god we look terrible without him calling plays and obviously it is tough to you know replace your OC in that game but that's that's the game we got uh dominated by the Texas kicker who now kicks for uh, Seattle Seahawks I believe uh Dickerson is his last name I'm blanking on Dicker the kicker yeah there we go Cameron Decker yep and uh but yeah it's great to see him back in the SEC and uh I'm excited to see what they can do at Tennessee Sounds good. All right, for Langston Newsom, I've been Eric Blum. Thank you for listening to this week's Mizzou Sports Podcast, and we will see you next time.